starting a new series in the book of Exodus. And um, we have actually illuminated journals again. Uh, so those are at the back. The ushers can pass those out. So this is an opportunity actually to build a library. I would recommend actually getting these as we go through books. We'll supply these. You can take notes during sermons. You can do your devotional and take notes. You can, if you're an artist, draw art. That will help you remember points. Just to uh, really use this journal. And then put it on a shelf with all your other journals. And over the years, uh, when you're going through, uh, maybe you read through the Bible over a year or two, uh, read it by going through your journal. Pull the journal off uh, the shelf and then go back through it. So this is uh, an investment in you guys, really. Uh, so we trust it will be a benefit that you'll experience throughout your whole life. So if you are interested in one, just raise your hand and we'll pass them to you. If we run out, we'll get more. Uh, we, have, we certainly have enough for everyone here today, I believe. And there's uh, plenty of space to take notes. So that's for you to enjoy. Um, so we're starting this series. We're going to go through the whole book of Exodus. It'll take us, uh, I think, about till summertime or so. Uh, today will be an introduction. We're just looking at the whole message. Let me ask as we start this wonderful book, uh, what is your favorite epic story? So maybe a movie, maybe a book. Maybe a historical story, too, actually. Um, what's your favorite epic story? And so, you know, when I say epic, right, you know what I mean. Like, there's grand themes, and there's, you know, villains, and heroes, and, and challenges, and, and failure, and triumph, and, you know, and, and it's a big story. So what's your favorite? There's lots of ones out there, right? Star Wars. Uh, hopefully you're, you're feeling better about the Star Wars epic story at this point. After the last installment, I won't say anything about it, but... Um, Lord of the Rings, Avengers, Paradise Lost, Les Miserables, those are all epic stories. What's your, what's your favorite? Um, and then what is it about these stories that we love? Why, why do we, why do we uh, you know, enjoy epic stories? And, and I think you know, what you see in epic stories, you see a, a, a band of friends, there's these characters, and and there's usually friendship of, of some sort going on. There's a villain. There's a desperate situation. There's great displays of courage and sacrifice and love. And then there's usually, um, there's usually like setbacks, right? And then there's some great deliverance that takes place. Um, and, and usually, you know, things happen at a, at a cost, though, in these epic stories. And I think we love them because, well, it kind of helps us see life. Because life, though our lives might not be so epic, um, we have aspects of that in life, right? We have struggles, we have challenges. And I think also in epic stories, there's usually a noble cause, right? There's some noble cause. It might just be the protection and preservation of, of the people, or there might be some other noble cause. And I think we need noble cause, uh, causes to live. We're, we're made in God's image. And, and so in light of that, uh, I think that's why we gravitate to epic stories. Uh, I don't know, uh, one epic story is The Princess Bride. I don't know if you remember the beginning of that story, right? Um, the grandfather's there with the son, the grandson, and the dialogue, actually, I have the dialogue right in front of me, goes this way. He, grandfather comes in and says, I, I brought you a special present. Grandson says, what is it? Open it up. He opens up, and he says, a book? Grandfather says, that's right. When I was your age, television was called books, and this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. His grandson says, does it, 
Does it have any sports in it? Grandfather says, are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Grandson says, doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Grandfather says, oh, well, thank you very much. Very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. And he starts The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1, Buttercup, dot, dot, dot. Um, it's an epic story that he's going to read, and yet the son is thinking, the grandson is like, a book? Really? Is this going to be epic? And what I'm introducing to you today and, and over the next months is an epic book and a story. And I think maybe for some of us, we're, we could be like the grandson. Maybe our thing is like, been there, done that, read through that book before. And what I would submit to you is that there's probably a lot more to this book than we know. And our journey through it, I think, will be a journey of, of following an epic story. We're going to see in this story, um, there's a cruel villain, there's an unlikely hero, what they call a noir hero, a hero that, that is imperfect. There's overwhelming disasters, there's a spectacular deliverance, there's a long journey, there's victories, there's failure, there, uh, there's a mountaintop experience, there's the formation of a, of a new nation and a great promise in the grand finale, there's magic, there's miracles, there's displays of power, battles, feasts, festivals, music, and dancing. And I hope you can stay awake for all of it. This book is intended not to be just an epic story, but an epic story that changes our lives. It's here in Scripture, not only for our entertainment, perhaps, but for our edification and being built up. And so today, basically, is the trailer for the movie. I'm going to give you a, a taste of what's to come. We're going to do an overview that will help you, I think, prepare for this uh, series and, and getting into this book, so we'll cover certain aspects. You'll have notes there. Don't feel like you need to take notes. You can just sit back and listen, um, but we'll do a review. But before we do go any further, let's stop and pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we thank you for this amazing, epic book, and we thank you, Lord. It, it certainly is a glorious piece of literature, unlike any other epic story, and it's enjoyable just for that reason, but Lord, we know that it's more than literature that this is about. It's about you making yourself known and us encountering you and us learning about what it is to be your people and us learning how to walk with you and how to be on this journey you call us to and do the work you call us to. Thank you for this wonderful book. It's such a foundational book and I pray you'd help me teach it well today and throughout the whole series as all of us, the different pastors will, will teach as well. Help us. Help us to hear. Help us to stay awake in the greatest sense of that word. That our spiritual eyes would be wide open. Our hearts would be wide open and eager to hear and eager to understand, eager to be changed. We pray, Lord, you would change us as a result of this series. For our joy in you, for your glory, and for blessing to those who so desperately need to know your love and truth. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're just going to move through certain things here first. Uh, as we look at this book, it's important to recognize that Exodus fits into the entire Bible. It's a continuation of the series uh, of five books written by Moses. And, um, and so Genesis goes right before this. Genesis is a, an epic story as well. 
Uh, Genesis is the story of the origin of, of all mankind, but in particular the origin of God's people. Um, and Genesis was written for the, the people of God as they journeyed, actually, from Egypt into the Promised Land. And so they needed to know their history, so they have the book of Genesis. And there's so many important things that we learn in the book of Genesis that are connected to the book of Exodus. So in Genesis, of course, we see the creation of mankind, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. We see uh, the goodness, and the beauty, and the promise of this creation. But then we watch as the story turns tragic because this first couple failed to trust and obey God. They choose their own way, rebellion and pride, human pride. Instead of dependence on God and, and, and fruitfulness in God, obedience in God, they choose to depend on themselves, to go their own way, and, and then they suffer the consequence of that broken relationship. And much of the story, actually, in that first part is, a, is about where that goes, where that failure goes. And it's very sad, actually. And it gets worse and worse, actually. Uh, and then yet God uh, intervenes, and he, he brings judgment on the earth, but then he brings hope through Noah and his descendants and, and then, even more importantly, we meet Abraham. And so mankind, in their rebellion after Adam and Eve, are running away from God. And the story of Genesis is about God running after them in ways that he does that. And part of, uh, an important part of that is he calls Abram to himself. He calls Abram out of the world, out of this rebellion and pride and this false, false religion, false truth, untruth. Uh, to believe God, to follow God. And, and so Abraham does. And Abraham believes God. God promises to bless Abraham. Um, he promises to make him a blessing to the whole earth. And so there's wonderful hope in the storyline at that point because it's been dark. Yet there's this man, Abraham, who's called out. And God says, I'm going to bless you. And not just you, through you, the whole world, all nations will be blessed through you. So you see a turn in this promise that God's going to do something to intervene. And Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. So very early on, this core covenant with Abraham, this solemn agreement that God makes with Abraham, is a, is a covenant of grace. An important thing to understand, looking at the whole scripture. It's all based on grace and dependence on God. God never designed us to go on our own, to merit righteousness and heaven on, uh, by ourselves, but to merely, ultimately, depend on him his grace. And so that's true in Abraham. And so then God makes promises to Abraham. We see his descendants. And at the end of the story in Genesis, uh, we find the people of God actually not uh, experiencing those promises. So there's a promise of blessing and multiplication. There's a promise of them returning to the land and living in this land that Abraham dwelled in fruitfully. And yet at the end of the story, they aren't in the land. They're in the opposite place. They're in Egypt. They're not receiving the promise. And yet the transition into this book uh, is from that context of all that's gone in, in Genesis. And so at the end of Genesis, chapter 50, I think we have this verse to put up, um, Joseph, who's a descendant of Abraham, he's a descendant through Isaac and Jacob, and then he's the son of, of Jacob, he is looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise. And so he says in uh, chapter 50 at the end, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. End of story, but not end of story. There's a transition now into our book, into the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, it starts with this setting, um, speaking of what's going on in uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 kind of reiterates what we saw earlier. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increase greatly. So the people of Israel are now in Egypt, and yet they're fruitful, and they increase greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is part of the blessing to Abraham, right? God said, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have descendants more than the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. And God, in the opening of Exodus, this is here to remind us that God is actually about fulfilling his promise so that as they're in Egypt, they're multiplying, they're growing, even though they're not in the right place yet. And then a situation develops. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so, so the people are enslaved in Egypt. So the storyline from Genesis is continuing. They've multiplied, they're prospered, and yet they're enslaved. They're being blessed, and yet they're facing adversity. That's the setting for this whole story, all that's going to develop. Now that's what really went on, of course, but it's important to understand the backdrop. As God's fulfilling his promises, this is the backdrop. This is the tension. This is the problem. Blessing, but they're enslaved. They're oppressed. They're in Egypt, too. And Egypt is not just any old nation. Egypt is like the nation. It's the superpower of the time. It is the greatest nation, and Pharaoh is the strongest person in the world. He has great power because he rules as a godlike figure over Egypt. And so basically, they're in a bad situation because they're in this country, and they're under this great power. And, and certainly Egypt had all their gods that were, uh, in their mind, the, the background, the foundation for all their power. And that's the situation. They're enslaved, they're oppressed, they're under Egypt. That's the setting here. In the story, we're going to meet key characters. As the story develops and falls through all 40 chapters, we're going to meet key characters. Of course, the star of the story, the central hero, and the chief protagonist of this story is God. That's right. It's God. God's the, the chief protagonist in this story, and really every story in Scripture, by the way. That's important to understand. The, there are other important stars in the story, but God is the ultimate one. And so this book is about learning what God is like. Who is he? What is this creator like? And so as we go through, we'll learn about this. He is the, the key figure in this. And we see his glory on display. We see him in charge of history. We see him orchestrating to fulfill his promises, making promises, to, and then fulfilling them. And so this is a journey to learn what God's like. That's one of the things we'll, we'll benefit. We see uh, the second most important character in the story is the people of God. Not Moses. We'll get to him. It's the people of God. And so this is a story about the people of God. This is a, a story about the descendants of Abraham. That follows on from Genesis because Genesis is showing us this promise to Abraham to bless and multiply him. And so Exodus is the continuation of that storyline, the people of God, the whole people of God. So Moses is important, certainly, but he's not the, the next most important person. This is about the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. And these are the physical, the biological descendants of Abraham, but they're meant to also be the spiritual descendants of Abraham, too, who have the same sort of faith that Abraham had. And so this book is a picture of what it looks like to be the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. And all those who have the faith of Abraham are spiritual descendants of Abraham. So we are really part of this. So we learn about ourselves in this story. And of course, the next key factor, key character is Moses. 
Moses is an interesting hero. He's quite a hero, but he's a noir hero. He's an unlikely hero, right? Um, it's really interesting. His background, he's rescued from infanticide, and he grows up in Pharaoh's household. It's amazing irony in the story. During the time when Pharaoh wanted to kill all the boys, Moses is rescued by Pharaoh's household itself. And his name means to be drawn out of the water. It's interesting, the, the name of the city they built and the, the, the Pharaoh, from what we know, was Ra Moses. We say Ramses. And the difference is Ra was the chief god of the Egyptians. Moses is this, this key character that is a foil to Pharaoh, really. And he's raised up to deliver the people from oppression from this great, powerful nation. But he is uh, someone who is weak and flawed. Early on, he, he wants to do it on his own terms. He utterly fails. He runs away out of Egypt. And he goes into the desert, and he wants nothing to do with this anymore. And God has to call him, and he's like, no, I can't do it. And so he's a weak leader, but he is a great leader. And it's a picture of God's grace working through this. And, and Moses learns what it is to be a leader as he goes along in the storyline as well. You watch Moses learn to lay his life down for the people and to intercede and to be meek. It's a wonderful story just studying Moses. Moses is the author of this book. That's important to understand. He's the author. We see it within the book itself because he is writing, told to write things by God. We see it referenced in the rest of the Bible that Moses is the author. Um, Moses was obviously literate wrote down the story. There are, is some degree of editing that goes on, of course, because it talks about how Moses has died and after his life and so forth, so that Moses didn't write that part, at least. In the past, uh, probably more 30 years ago and previous, there was a lot of criticism, uh, source criticism, which is a valid uh, field of, of literature and, um, where you basically try to figure out who wrote it and how they wrote it. There was a lot of work done in source criticism on the Pentateuch, and they looked at the different words that were used for God, the different styles, and, and they also came from a, uh, I think, an assumption that there isn't the supernatural. And so they thought this must have been written by other people later on. And so they actually went through all these books and came up with this theory that there were three different editors that came much later, uh, J, E, and P. Um, and these guys had different styles, and that's why you see different names for God. So you see Yahweh. Uh, I am that I am, or some, uh, it's in our Bibles that we'll usually say Lord with all capitals. That means Yahweh. Uh, that's his name. Sometimes he's called that. Other times he's called Elohim, or that's Lord with small O-R-D in our translation. Uh, there's certain different styles. There's different uh, aspects in this book, uh, different things that it gives its attention to. And so these guys said, well, obviously they're different editors. Well, that theory has kind of fallen by the wayside, just to let you know. Uh, as we've developed a better understanding of literature and ancient literature. We talked about this in our class this morning. Um, and this is a genius piece of literature written by a guy who was educated in Pharaoh's household. And uh, they've found other literature from the same time period, and it shows the same sorts of variations in word choices and style. So in those days, if you wanted to make points, you used different styles as you wrote. And so we realize now, looking at, well, it makes total sense that Moses is the author. Um, our, our, our Bible is reliable, and, it, and it, it's just a smarter investment to assume the authors the Bible says are the authors are the authors. In the long run, we're going to be right, even though at times we may look foolish in light of some of the recent scholarship. But scholarship has moved along, 
And at this point, uh, the, the stronger theory, I think, is that it just fits in with how literature was done. So Moses is an important character in this. We'll meet other characters as we go, and there'll be lessons attached to each of them. Of course, Pharaoh is a key character. He's the chief vi villain who exemplifies pride, false worship. He refuses to humble himself, and he brings judgment and destruction on his empire as a result. He's kind of the picture of, of rebellion against God and the consequences. And God has no trouble dealing with Pharaoh. He is the most powerful person, and they would have understood him as a god of sorts. And in the ancient world, Pharaoh was invincible. Nothing for God. Um, and so we learn a lesson about that. We'll, we'll meet Aaron, Moses' brother, who's also a struggling hero. Uh, he learns to be faithful as the chief priest of God's household. We'll look at other characters, Joshua, Jethro, Zipporah, Miriam, Phineas, Nadab and Abihu, Korah, the Melekites, and others. And all of them will have lessons as we follow along the story. The book is laid out um, in two sections. There's the first half and the second half. The first half is, uh, is chapters 1 through 18, and that's the, the rescue story. Uh, we call the book the book of Exodus, and that Exodus means leaving, right? Um, so the first half is about leaving, how they leave Egypt. Uh, the, the Jewish name for the uh, book is not Exodus, it's uh, the book of names because it starts out that way. Um, but the first, the first half, 1 through 18, is about this deliverance, this grand rescue. And then the latter half, 19 through 40, is about uh, the new nation, the new people, and their, their life now under, under God, in covenant with God. And so as we go through, you'll see that, learn uh, different lessons through all that section. Um, and, and we'll see that it's really a follow-on to Genesis, as I said, um, because the there's promises, and then they get into trouble. And so God delivers them out of that trouble, and then he starts to fulfill that promise to Abraham by establishing them as a nation and, and to bring blessing to them and through them, blessing to the world. That's part of the intention of the Mosaic Covenant, blessing to them and through them to the world. So we'll see that as we go along. It's just a wonderful book, uh, and as I've already touched on, an epic book full of all the typical uh, tools and tropes of epic literature. It's just jam-packed. It's an exciting story. Uh, it's no wonder that they've made movies out of it, right? The Ten Commandments, um, the, uh, the one, the animated one, which was Prince of Egypt, uh, just because this story is just fantastic. It's a great piece of literature. It's full of key themes, though. Um, so as we go along, we learn key things in the, in the story. So let me just touch on some of the key themes. First, of course, God himself. We see in this book who God is. It's a key theme just to reveal what God's like. So our, our most important endeavor in life is to know God, to enjoy him and worship him. That's, that's the most important thing we could do. And this book is an excellent way to know what God's like. It's a picture of who he is. And it's full of things that show what God's like. Um, early on, Moses meets God, right? And he's in the burning bush. And he's commissioned to go back to the people. And it, and it says in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, uh, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So they didn't have a name for God, a particular name at this point. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what was his name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's his name. I am who I am. And he said, Say to this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's his name. And that reveals what he's like. I am who I am. 
what would you think if your name was it is what it is hi what's your name oh it is what it is what would my name be saying it says a lot right it says something about my view of life it is what it is it just is what it is that's we use that phrase well God's name is the ultimate it is what it is but it's not it it's I I am who I am so just the name of God alone reveals what he's like he's the ultimate reality he's the ultimate reality he's the founder of all reality he's the creator he's the sustainer he's the goal everything comes from him ultimately through him and ultimately to him he's the ultimate reality there's no better name in some ways to teach us what he's like than that name I am who I am the ultimate reality we're going through the worldview class and this is one of the key things in our worldview class is we have to live in light of this name otherwise Reality doesn't make sense where we end up in bogging down in confusion and, and introspection and so forth. We get lost unless we know I am who I am is the creator of all things and all things return back to him. So we learn about God just in his name. And then it's wonderful because the latter half of this, he says, God also said to Moses, say to this to the people of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Isn't that wonderful? He's not just grand and the creator of all and sustainer of all and all things from him. He's personal. He's real. He's relational. And not just that. If we read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they are not such perfect people, are they? They mess up. They fail. They fall. And yet God condescends to relate to them and to call them to relate to him based on grace. A grace that really does change their lives, and we do see them uh, affected, of course, by their walk with God, but it's, the basis is not their perfection and worthiness, God's kindness and mercy. So God is both glorious and, and the creator of all things and the purpose of all things and the end of all things, but he's also a friend who's close, who loves us and wants us to walk with him. So we learn about God and in just the name, that's just the beginning, chapter 3. But then throughout, we, we learn more about God, what he's like. Chapter 34, Moses is pleading with God to, to show his glory to Moses because Moses understands how important it is to know God and to be identified as his people. And so the Lord responds, it says in chapter 34, verses 6 to 8, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. And that's the I am. The, the I am who I am. The I am who I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed down his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is who God is. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's faithful. He forgives. But he's no pushover holy. Don't think you can play games with God. There are consequences of choosing rebellion to our lives and even our children and so forth. And yet he is there to be a forgiving God. This is who God is. This is his glory. This is what he's like. So this book is wonderful in showing us what God is like and his goodness and glory. And we will learn about this as we go. We learn something in this book also about ourselves and the reality of um, 
of the idea of slavery and freedom. So we'll see as we go through this book, the people are enslaved by Pharaoh, but then they're called to serve God. And that word actually is the same word, slave and serve, it's the same word, which is translated differently because of the circumstances. One is they're, they're forced to serve, and they're oppressed in their service. The other one is they're free to serve, but it's the same word. Uh, Bob Dylan said it well. I don't know if you know the song, you've got to serve somebody. 1979, you might not know who Bob Dylan is. I won't try to impersonate him. Um, but listen, he's a unique guy. This is the song, this is just part of the lyrics. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's truth we see in, in Exodus. That we are called to serve, and there's this reality that freedom and service go together. And boy, this is a good lesson for us. We need to understand this. And so what we see in the storyline is that they're enslaved, they're under Pharaoh, they're oppressed, they're being forced to serve Pharaoh, and he's a cruel master. And God calls them and he frees them. They're freed out of that slavery to not just wander and do what they want, but to serve God. You see, freedom is not preserved in, in, in the sense that you can just be free and not serve anybody. You have to serve somebody. And who you serve will determine whether your freedom continues. The storyline here in the background to this in the whole Bible is, is that we are freed in God through Christ from slavery to sin and other things and slavery to self, to be enslaved to him and thus preserve our freedom. And we can make choices with our freedom. If our choice with our freedom, if we're forgiven in the Lord, we're free, is to use our freedom to serve ourselves, to serve our preferences, to serve our convenience, then we will be enslaved to ourself. It's a paradox. That's just reality. And it's important in a, in a country and a region that values freedom to get that. Freedom doesn't continue unless you choose to enslave yourself to the right master. And when you enslave yourself to the Lord, you say, I want to serve you. He keeps you free from being bound. And he calls you to, of your own choice, say, yes, Lord, I want to serve you and your purposes. So freedom isn't about self-preference and, and convenience. Freedom is being freed from the things that harm us and oppressive masters to serve a master that's a good master and to follow his ways and walk in his ways. And so all of our stuff as believer, believers belongs to him. We're called to be his servants. We're to invest ourselves in him and his ways. And so that's what he calls the people of Israel to here. Um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 2 through 5. If you can put that up. That's there somewhere. Um, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I rescued you. You're free. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I want you to stay free. Don't serve them, but serve me. And earlier on, um, that's what he says. Um, he says to Moses, when he's saying what he's going to do in chapter 3, verse 12, he said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. So 
So God is rescuing them from slavery to serve him. And so we learn about slavery and freedom and these important truths that are just so key for us in a, in a culture that so values freedom to understand that your, your, your freedom is not serving yourself. Freedom is serving the Lord, being freed from the things that are cruel masters to serve the good master. It's a paradox that's real. We learn about redemption in Exodus. Redemption means buying something back or getting something back. Usually there's a, a price that gets paid for it. And so God redeems his people in Exodus. We learn about that. Uh, he redeems them out of slavery. Chapter 6, uh, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am, the, I, uh, I, am the, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is redeeming his people. He's rescuing them. He's buying them back from the Egyptian slavery to freedom, to relationship with him. And this is part of just how God relates to us. We need redemption. We need rescue. <clears throat> we get sold into slavery, and he buys us back. And, and the, of course, this is done in, in Exodus through this redemption, and particularly uh, shown through the Passover. And in the Passover... As God brings his judgment on Egypt, the final and terrible judgment is, is the angel of death coming and taking the life of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And by the, by the way, God is the author of life. He gives and he takes. It's his choice. And he, he comes in judgment because of the sins of Egypt. The angel of death comes to take the life of all the firstborn, to display his power and authority over all Egypt. And then he says to his people, what I want you to do I want you to sacrifice a spotless lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on your doorposts. When the angel of death comes through and sees the blood on the doorposts, he'll pass over your house. That's where Passover comes from. He'll pass over and, they, and your firstborn will not die. And so the blood of the lamb, in a sense, pays for the firstborn in each house. And God tells them to commemorate this every year, to remember his redemption, to remember his deliverance, that he redeemed them. He brought judgment on Egypt, but, but he passed over them through the blood of the lamb paid for that firstborn. And they are to always remember that and how, uh, how they would sacrifice in light of their firstborn as well. This spotless lamb who's the price that is paid for their redemption points forward to ultimately Jesus, who is the perfect spotless lamb. The innocent spotless lamb whose blood was shed for us and covers us that the angel of death may pass over us who deserve death. That through his blood shed for us, through simple faith in him, his blood counts and covers us. God passes over, does not judge us but even more counts us as sons and daughters. He redeems us as his people. It's amazing. Amazing in Exodus, amazing in its fulfillment in Christ. This is all connected as well to the idea of covenant. Um, covenant is maybe something we're not too familiar with, but a very important thing in understanding the Bible. Covenant is just a solemn agreement uh, that usually brings blessing and, and curses if it's disobeyed. It's usually between a more powerful and less powerful person, not always, but uh, usually. Um, and there are, are promises made and stipulations of the covenant. And so uh, the Bible is full of covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. If you want to know God uh, and know what it is to be his people, you need to understand covenant. This idea of promises and conditions. 
And so it starts right in the beginning. Of course, in Genesis, the, he makes a covenant of sorts with Adam and Eve. He blesses them. He gives them everything they need. And he says, I want you to, to not eat of that tree, to trust me and obey me. And if you do, you will receive blessing. You'll be able to eat of the tree of life. And you'll fulfill the mission to, uh, to fill the earth and image me everywhere. And yet they break that covenant. And every human being since lives in that broken relationship, that broken covenant. And yet God continues to pursue us, makes a covenant with Abraham that is a one-way covenant. If you read the story in Genesis, Abraham's asleep when God makes the covenant. Uh, it's all a covenant of grace that is received simply through faith. And then we see uh, the storyline in Exodus, God makes a covenant with his people. So he delivers them from slavery and he brings this wonderful grace of redemption and he says, now I want you to be my people. I want you to follow me and, and experience blessing. And so it's meant to fall in line with the covenant with Abraham that there's this covenant with Moses. The intention is that they will live as those who are of faith like Abraham, trusting in God, knowing that they're counted righteous through faith alone. And then they're to enter into this covenant. of a na It's a national covenant with the people of God, with God, in light of his grace of deliverance to Egypt, to obey him. So chapter... 19, verse 5. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So the intention in this covenant is that they would respond in obedience and that they would experience blessing and live as his treasured possession in front of the whole world. So part of that fulfillment of Abraham's the promise to Abraham is meant to be through this covenant. And they observe the covenant uh, and celebrate it with the Sabbath. The Sabbath, uh, resting one day out of seven, is a sign of them being in covenant with God under this covenant through Moses, the old covenant as we call it. So it's important for us to understand that, that, that there's this reality, and, and we'll go through that, and we'll, we'll understand the old co covenant, I think, better by going through Exodus, and we'll talk about how it fits in with the new covenant. We're going to go through this and realize, it's pretty obvious right away, actually, that it doesn't quite work that they're, they fail um, and, they, and they fall short of the conditions of the covenant. And it leaves you going through Exodus wondering, is there something better? And the covenant itself under Moses is full of all, these, all this foreshadowing of a better covenant, all these things that speak of a better way to do it. And that points ultimately to Jesus. And so, of course, as we go through Exodus, we'll be talking about Jesus and the new covenant. And so a believer now lives under the new covenant in Jesus. We'll learn more as we go. Related to all this, um, two, just six different themes, hang in there. Um, related to this as well is the whole idea of law and grace. That law is basically when God lays down a rule, do this. It's not optional. It's a command. And grace, which is, which is free, free things, right? It's, it's certainly being forgiven. When we don't deserve to be forgiven, he forgives us as we turn to him. Grace is an unmerited gift. Um, and often it's unmerited in the light of our offenses. So it's not just that like, you didn't earn it, but you actually did the opposite. And so grace is this idea. And, and sometimes we struggle. How do law and grace fit together? And there's this tendency, I think, in understanding grace to want to say, well, don't worry about the law. Or we go the other way and we think it's about the law. Obey the law, you'll please God, and you'll be right with God. And we don't understand their interplay. Well, Exodus teaches us about the interplay of law and grace. So important. We see it in chapter 20 when God gives the Ten Commandments. That's where the Ten Commandments are. 
And sometimes we forget to see how it starts out. So before he gives the commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he says, do anything, he says, I am the Lord your God. I am the I am. And I brought you out of slavery. I'm your God. I've done this for you. And now in light of my grace to you and rescuing you, you should have no other gods before you. You should not make a carved image. You shall, you, shall not, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. So all these commandments follow in light of grace. And that's so important to get. It, it, uh, it, it doesn't work to focus on law without grace. and It doesn't work to focus on grace without law. The law actually is just the specifics of love. Right? The, the commandments are summed up in two commandments. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So what's the law? It's just the specifics of love. And when you get grace, you'll get love. When you get God's grace and understand what he's done for you, the degree of what he's done to sacrifice himself, to bear the holy justice of God on the cross for you through Christ, when you understand that, it's totally free just says, please receive it. Turn away from the other stuff and receive it. When you get that, you can't help but love him. And if you love him, you can't help but want to follow his law, his ways, the specifics of love. That's all. That's how these things work together. It's so important to get that and not start saying, well, you know, we're not under the law. We're under grace. Well, yes, but, but you're not lawless. You don't experience grace to be lawless. God doesn't rescue them from Egypt and then say, just go do whatever you want now. See you later, kids. He says, no, walk with me. Be holy like me, for I'm holy. You're my people. You belong to me. We belong to each other. So let's live this way together. It's so important to understand. By the way, the New Testament has uh, a lot more laws than the Old Testament. There's 613 in the Old, uh, over 1,000. Depending on how you count them, like 1,050 in the New Testament. So getting the connection is so important for us. Finally, important theme, and we're almost done here, um, God's presence. Of course, this is ultimately about God himself. It's about being with God. And so this book finishes with God being in their midst. All that's going on is this rescue from Egypt is for what purpose? To be with God. To be his people. To live with him. To have him in their midst. And the law, what's the purpose of the law? Well, it's to relate to God and to shine to the world what God looks like. And then uh, much of the latter half is about the tabernacle, which is about how God makes it so that he can dwell with them because they're a sinful, broken people. And he wants provision. And all these provisions ultimately point to Jesus as the ultimate provision. And that through this, he can dwell in their midst. And so the book ends in chapter 40 with this tabernacle being built. It's this grand finale, actually. The, the culmination of all this other stuff is the fact that now God dwells with the, the people. And so it says in, in chapter 40, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud, this is a cloud of God's presence, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the I Am filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
throughout all their journeys, where whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys, the end. This story is ultimately about being close to God, being his people, having him dwell in our midst. So to sum all that up, this book is really about the God of glory and goodness rescuing his people, calling them into covenant with himself as his treasured possession to be the focal point of his presence and image on earth. That's the, a way to sum it up. The God of glory and goodness rescues his people, calls them into covenant with himself as his treasured possession to be the focal point of his presence and image on the earth. And as we conclude today, there's certain things I think we ought to be praying for in this series. To know God better. To know what it is to be his people. There's real impact. This, God's word is living and active. He wants to, to speak to us. So what I'd like to do as we transition, as maybe the band comes up and Toby uh, will later transition us to communion, let's take a minute or so and just ask ourselves and ultimately ask the Lord what we'd like to see happen in our own life. Maybe you just want to know God better. Maybe you want to understand what it's all about in a clear way. Maybe you'd like him to do something in this church or in your family or in your marriage in light of all these themes that we've touched on. Maybe there's just something that's come to mind that struck you as we've gone through this. So let's just take a minute, maybe write that down, pray about it. And then after a minute or so, Toby will come up and transition us.